You're listening to the Vital and Thriving Podcast for congregations building beloved community. I'm Scott Sherman. And I'm Claire Dietrich Rana. We're two freewheeling, fun-loving, kind of ridiculous Episcopal priests. Speak for yourself. Serving the people of God and God's church here in the Bay Area. While supporting each other and you in noticing and responding to the movements of the Spirit in this unique moment we find ourselves in. Welcome to yet another episode of the Vital and Thriving Podcast. We are thrilled you're here. We are especially glad to have you with us today. You know, as I think we said before, every aspect of Vital and Thriving Congregations is rooted in a series of spiritual practices. And particularly when we start off uh, this contemplative method of reading scripture, that's known as dwelling in the word, where clergy, you know, spiritual leaders, uh, lay leaders, the normal people, <laughs> everybody involved in our pilot cohort, uh, we've all been doing this, this spiritual practice of dwelling together for over a year now. Uh, and we've done it in our diocesan-wide gatherings, um, even the executive committee of our diocese is going to be practicing dwelling in the word for this next for this next year. Uh, but also the the parishes themselves that are involved in the pilot cohort and also in the new cohort uh, are starting to dip their toes into this practice. And I, I, it really is not an exaggeration to say that I think the depth of a congregation's experience of the three year process is really tied to the consistency in which the community is dwelling in the Word together. It's just really important. So with that in mind, we're really delighted to welcome local Episcopal author and lay leader, Debbie Thomas, who is also well acquainted with the power of Scripture to inspire and transform. Debbie serves as the Minister of Lifelong Formation at St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Palo Alto, just up the road from me where she creates opportunities for people of all ages to grow spiritually and to go deep and wide in their relationships with God and with each other. She also regularly contributes to various magazines, including The Christian Century, about scripture, faith, and contemporary Christian life. Earlier this year, she had her first book published, Into the Mess and Other Jesus Stories, Reflections on the Life of Christ. Welcome, Debbie. We are so, so, so glad that you're here. Thank you so much. I am delighted to be here. Oh, we're so glad you're here. <laughs> you know, Debbie, we, uh, and this book is so good, you guys. I'm just going to say, I'm just so good. straight up. Often we'd give a polite nod to our guests, but this is, get this book. This is a good one. But, you know, we, so we start off, Debbie, we ask people about their journey into ministry and leadership. One of the things I think is so cool is that you are both the daughter and the granddaughter of pastors. Uh, so like the church has been your starting place and your destination. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about the kind of Christianity you grew up with and how did you find your way to the Episcopal tradition? Sure. Um, so my parents are from a place called Kerala, which is a state in the south of India um, that has a long tradition of Christianity. As either history or legend would have it, it depends on who you ask. Um, the disciple Thomas brought the gospel to Kerala in the first century and, and was eventually martyred there for his faith. So um, my ancestors are heirs of that history. 
over the centuries after that, of course, waves of missionaries from different Christian traditions came to India and brought their own practices and started churches. So there was a lot of diversity in belief and in practice. And the particular stream that came down to my parents and then to me was conservative evangelical. So that's how I grew up. Parents immigrated to the United States when I was a baby, and they settled down in Boston. So my first church homes were two different evangelical communities that my father pastored, a large multi-ethnic Baptist church in the heart of the city, and then a smaller non-denominational Indian church for people who wanted to worship in the style that they were used to back home. So I was a full-on PK, like a little church nerd, um, you know, <laughs> steeped in worship and altar calls and Christmas pageants. That was my whole world uh, as a kid. And, and I loved it. I really did. I loved everything about it. The songs, the sermons, um, the potlucks, <laughs> the sense mm-hmm. that cultivating a relationship with God is at the heart of what it means to be human and to live a meaningful life. In time, though, as I left home and started college and went on to grad school, I started to wrestle with certain aspects of evangelical theology and practice. I couldn't understand things. For example, why would God gift women with leadership skill and spiritual discernment and then ask them to be silent in the church? Why did we have to hold conservative views on science, on politics, on other faith traditions, um, Mm -hmm. on the needs and aspirations of the LGBTQ plus community? Um, and I got to a place where I could not live with a church that didn't recognize beauty and creation and silence and sacrament as pathways to God. Hmm. So, as was the case for many people, I began this long process of deconstruction, uh, of questioning everything I'd inherited. And that was long and that was painful, in part because it, it was tied to my ethnic culture as well and to family. And hmm. so, leaving one meant in some way leaving the other. But at some really deep level, I felt like I had no choice. It was dishonest to stay. I never in that process left Christianity altogether. I believed in Jesus. I loved the Bible. I wanted to stay in the faith. But I knew that I had to find a community that would hold all of me, my doubts, my questions, my intellect, my feminism. So I began to explore. um, Where was the church that could handle complexity? Where was the church that respected the Bible as the word of God? And at the same time, understood that it's a complicated human document. Where's the church that doesn't fear science and history and psychology? Where's the church that cares about full inclusion for women and for our siblings in the LGBTQ plus community? So all of that searching after some detours um, led me to the Episcopal Church. Mm-hmm. Mm, thank you for sharing that. So your, your book is a collection of essays and meditations on specific passages of scripture. I wondered if you were always particularly drawn to the Bible and what influences or people informed how you read these sacred texts, the questions you bring to them, the imagination with which you inhabit them. Sure. So I was always drawn to the Bible. I think one of the gifts of evangelicalism is that it's, it has a high expectation of biblical literacy, not just for the clergy, but also for the laity. So the stories in scripture are the first ones I learned as a little girl. And they were, so they were very foundational. The shadow side of that was that I grew up thinking that the only way to honor the Bible as God's word is to read it literally and to treat it as mm-hmm. a kind of inerrant handbook for 
all the things. Mm. The acronym that many post-evangelicals use is, you know, B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. Um, <laughs> and that's kind of how I, I have I, never I, heard that. Yeah, that's wow. Well, I, I, let me jot that down. I gotta yes. <laughs> so I'm um, like always telling my people, this is not a list of bullet points. <laughs> it's just so wow. interesting. Yeah. Wow. Um, so when that sort of instruction manual way of reading the Bible fell apart for me, I had to find a new way forward. And I was you know, lucky in that there's, there's just a lot of wonderful resources out there. And I, so I got plenty of help. Um, I started reading people like Barbara Brown Taylor, um, mm-hmm. Rachel Held Evans, uh, Pete Enns, Richard Rohr. And I began to see how big and expansive and varied the world of biblical interpretation really is. I started spiritual direction and learned about Ignatian contemplation, which Mm. for the first time gave me permission to enter into scripture in a creative way with my imagination and my senses. I had never done that before. Mm. I started to discover BIPOC theologians like Mm -hmm. Howard Thurman and Will Gaffney. um, And they modeled for me what it's like to read the Bible from the margins. So... All of that together suddenly made the Bible like more interesting and more mysterious yeah. and more intriguing and, and more fun than it had been before. I suddenly had permission to bring a historical consciousness and literary study and questions about race and gender and my own imagination to this text without being afraid that that kind of rigor would make the book fall apart. So um, I think if I could summarize a shift in a few words, I would say, I grew up going to the Bible for black and white answers to every question, as in, you know, tell me exactly what to do. And now I read the Bible as this sort of big, rollicking, multi-layered story of many people across cultures, across history, across all kinds of difference, living out their essential questions in the presence of God, wrestling their questions, experimenting with them, sitting with them. And somehow in that engagement, encountering a God who loves them and pursues them and never abandons them. Mm, mm. Mm. Uh, I'm just compelled to do a couple of shout outs here. So in addition to Debbie's book, everybody, you do need to read Jesus and the Disinherited, mm. Howard Thurman. You hadn't read that yet? Yes, yes beautiful That's, book. Yeah. Read Debbie first. <laughs> then read Howard Thurman. It's been around. It's been around. They won't go out of print. But go read that if you haven't done that. But you also, I was so happy you gave a shout out to my buddy Pete Enns. So mm. Pete and I are best buddies from seminary days. And uh, for listeners who don't know, um, he does an amazing podcast. He does. I uh, love Bible for Normal People. The Bible for Normal People. <laughs> yes. And uh, I just can't commend it enough. But, you know, one of the things Pete talks about is, Uh, One of the big shifts for him and me, like people who come out of similar traditions like you were describing, I come out of that kind of tradition, Uh, Mm -hmm. mine being the reform tradition, which is just a little more, you know, arrogant, I guess, Uh, (laughs) but but just as as buttoned up uh, in its conservative form. But, but, you know, uh, he asked the question of, uh, you know, how, how does he just had the question of like, how does the Bible actually work? How does it work? Uh, because this kind of, yeah. you know, utterly consistent, un- univocal voice, right. it's really not sustainable. And I actually wanted to pick up on the word you use in your title, Into the Mess, mm-hmm. uh, which I can imagine a younger version of you would have said, oh, that's, you can't call the Bible a mess. Oh, absolutely mm. not. <laughs> <laughs> but s- say a little more about about that. It's just so right on. Yeah, sure. Into the so- mess. 
I think there are two, well, there are many, but there are two misconceptions in particular about Christianity and neatness that I held for a long Mm. time in my own life and that I think other people both inside and outside the church also hold. The first is that we need to clean ourselves up before we can be in relationship with God. And that takes lots of different forms like, oh, when I finally get disciplined enough to pray every day, like then I'll sort out my spiritual life. Or when my daughter's soccer season is over and I can get to church every Sunday, then I'll get involved again. Or more seriously, you know, when I finally beat this addiction or this depression or this struggle in my marriage, then I will go back to being religious and, and talk to God. Um, so that's one misconception. The other is that the Christian life properly lived will not be messy because God Mm -hmm. is going to somehow keep it pristine and well-ordered for us because that's the transaction. I do A, God does B. So, you know, the well-lived Christian life doesn't include doubt and anger and meaninglessness and betrayal and absurdity, right? We do this faith thing right, and then we'll be spared all the ugly stuff. I earnestly believed both of these things for a long time. Um, Mm. And then they both fell apart. And Mm. for me, the falling apart came largely in the context of my parenting. Um, My husband and I have two children, both young adults now, and they have struggled for years with very serious and chronic health issues, um, issues that have not resolved and might not resolve, despite ongoing prayer and all sorts of medical intervention. Um, so that that was my pathway. For other people, the messiness hits in some other form. But I think that at some point or other, it hits for everyone. The neatness that we thought we were entitled to just goes away. And we have to find some other way forward. So what has helped me is to go back to the Bible and see that our sacred stories are actually full of messiness, um, full of ambiguity. Whether we're talking about Joseph, who had to put aside his ideas about being righteous and enter into a scandalous pregnancy and marriage, or John the Baptist, who, you know, does everything right, totally fulfills his vocation and then lands up in prison and lands up killed. Or Jesus, who at the time in his life when he most needed to feel God's closeness on the cross, instead experiences a terrifying silence. So... The Christian story is full of messiness. Messiness is baked right into it. Hence the title of the book. Mm -hmm. I love how you're describing like our moving toward the messiness of the biblical witness, but also God moving into the messiness of our like just actual lives Mm -hmm. and sort of both and at the same time. Right. Exactly. I think that's where the encounter really happens. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So we'll be sharing this episode in the season of Epiphany, which is full of themes of light and recognition and greater insight and understanding. And it really seems like your writing invites us to see this this Jesus who is deeply complex um, more clearly, to see him anew, and even to be profoundly unsettled by who we discover when we open our eyes and our hearts and our minds. In reflecting on Matthew 12, you wrote, Smack in the center of the sick, the deviant, the hungry, the unorthodox, and the unwashed, there sits Jesus saying, this, this is my family. If we're not shaken, we're not paying attention. I wonder what's shaking you about Jesus these days? Oh, that's a really beautiful question. Um, I think as I get older, uh, maybe more particularly as my children are getting older, as they're leaving the nest and launching their lives in a world that is 
so uncertain and so precarious right now. Hmm. I am more and more shaken by the incarnation, like shaken as Hmm. in just stunned. I am stunned by Jesus's vulnerability, his willingness to live a fully embodied life um, with everything that embodiment means in a risky Hmm. world, pain and illness and tiredness and violence and betrayal and loneliness and fear. He didn't hold himself immune from any of that. But even more than that, I'm shaken by his willingness to take on not a kind of abstracted, generic human body, but the body of a poor, colonized, oppressed, itinerant, unhoused, scandal-soaked, brown-skinned body. And that choice just in and of itself speaks volumes to me about God's heart and God's priorities. And it shakes me because that means that if I want to be a follower of Jesus, then I also need to lean into that same kind of embodiment and vulnerability. And that is scary. It's scary mm-hmm. to realize that the goal of the Christian life and the promise of the Christian life is not coziness and safety. It's something altogether else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is so beautiful. I, and I have to say, I, you got me shaking as well. I, the, mm-hmm. the, because I, I also, you know, for me, Debbie, the, the fact that you know, the incarnation is still a reality. The fact that God took that up into God's self in a once-for-all kind of way mm-hmm. so that, you know, God God can no more turn on. If God turns on us, God turns on God's self. <laughs> There's, yes, exactly. It's just a, it's just a bonded covenant yep. commitment that, yep. uh, yeah. yeah we can God never is even, forever implicated. <laughs> forever I love implicated. that. Yep. <laughs> forever implicated. Yep. Okay, so... You know, as you know, our we've begun this process with congregations in the Diocese of California. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a group that's gone through their first year, and another group that's kind of coming in. But you know, we're we're trying to reflect on our mission. You know, what is what what are we being called to? Uh, if God is present and at work, uh, missio send. How, how are we being? Mm-hmm. How is that love sending us, mm-hmm. uh, moving us? And there's just a lot of, <laughs> frankly, that make, it makes for very, very hard questions. Um, yes. You write in the book, uh, you're talking about the conundrum and contradictions of faith. You say, quote, if we don't find Christianity at, at least a little bit confusing, then perhaps it's not Christianity we're practicing, end quote. It, this just deeply resonates with the work <laughs> we're doing as congregationers <laughs> trying to sort out, you know, what are we actually about, right? Yeah. What's confusing these days about being Christian, uh, particularly as you think about it right here, being Christian in the Bay Area? In the Bay Area, yeah. Um, There's no question. This is a hard place to be a Christian because, you know, at our core, we're, we're deeply communal creatures. We were made for community and we thrive, I think, when we have a village, when we have a set of shared traditions and stories and language, um, when we live in a culture that supports our beliefs and then echoes those beliefs back to us and strengthens us in them. So it can be really confusing and lonely to live as Christians in a culture where, you know, church going is quaint and the Bible is fantastical and belief in God is ridiculous and Sabbath keeping is a kind of time suck. It's unnecessary. Mm -hmm. So I think if we're not careful, we as a church can, we can just curl in on ourselves and become self-protective and operate from a place of fear and defensiveness instead of courage and and openness and curiosity. 
Charles Taylor has this term that I love. He says, we live in a disenchanted culture, um, which is hard because Christianity is an enchanted religion. It's, it insists on more, more than the eye can see, more than the ear can hear, more than the startup can solve, more than the dollar can buy, right? It insists on the transcendent and the mysterious. And it's very honest about our brokenness, about our need for a salvation that we cannot make happen by ourselves. And those kind of truths don't sit easily in Silicon Valley. We are mm. trained to be self-sufficient. We can save ourselves. We can figure it out. Um, science and technology can make this okay for us. So I think our work as the church, and it's hard work, is to be countercultural and bravely so. Not, not in an obnoxious way that, you know, we're so, so much better than at all, but from a really humble place, a place of welcome. Because I think even in this culture that pretends to be so self-sufficient, there is a lot of pain and a lot of sorrow and disillusionment. And we just need to, to receive that and, and comfort people in that and offer them another way forward. Yeah. You know, I, I think that move from not only seeing and understanding this call on our lives, but this move into action in solidarity with the other action that is countercultural, that is uncomfortable. I think that the longer I'm a, a parish administrator, the more I see how how truly challenging it is to make those those actual moves in our daily lives. And so you write about this tendency that we have toward inaction and, and even nihilism just in the wider culture, but mm-hmm. of course it, it infiltrates our churches too. Sure. So in one place you note what's lethal to the spiritual life is apathy. And in another, Christian hope is, I love this, Christian hope is not a sedative. Christian hope gets us up and out the door. Um, what is it that you think so frustrates God about our sense of resignation? And where are you seeing Episcopalians get up and out the door in ways that are hopeful? Well, um, you know, again, I think if we take the incarnation seriously, not just as a kind of official dusty doctrine of the church, but as an actual way forward for us as Christ followers, then we have to be in the same business that Jesus was in on earth. We don't get to choose resignation because he didn't. The cost of that is just too high. And I think it's important for us to remember too that it's not as if the work of embodying love and mercy and justice was easy in his day. It was brutal. It was hard. It was life-threatening. But Jesus didn't look at the reach of the Roman Empire or the extent of his people's suffering or the shortcomings of his religious tradition and just throw up his hands and say, well, it's too big. It's too hard. I can't I can't touch it. He did what he was called to do. He honored his vocation. He pursued the lost and healed the sick and welcomed the stranger and fed the hungry. He didn't allow the brokenness of his time to defeat him. And I think that was because he could hold on to the the both now and the not yet. He could hold on to a vision of God's mm-hmm. kingdom so that even when it wasn't being immediately realized and immediately visible, he could still hold on to that vision and offer to people over and over and over and over again as an alternative that articulation mattered. And I think it still matters. We desperately need it. As for where I'm seeing Episcopalians Mm. getting up and out the door right now, for me, one of the most encouraging places is in our work around racial justice and reconciliation. Um, At St. Mark's, the church Mm. in Palo Alto where I serve, it's been amazing for me to see so many parishioners go through the sacred ground curriculum Mm -hmm. um, that the church is offering and, and then really think through what it means for a majority white church to 
look at our history, honestly, painful as that, as that can be, and then to repent of our sins and our omissions and, and think about what does it mean to be repairers of the breach here now. Mm-hmm. That is brave work, and we're doing it. So that gives me a lot of hope. Mm. We we had um, Ken and Stephanie Spellers on mm. as a as a guest here yeah. earlier uh, earlier in the year, and you know we were talking about the racial audit that the Episcopal Church did, which it was you know pretty pretty discouraging, mm. <laughs> pretty discouraging news. And we asked her about this because she she really she actually was encouraged by it. Because she said, you know, once you identify it, uh, I love this metaphor. She says that means you can throw powder on the poltergeist. Yes, <laughs> you can I like, love you that. Know, you know, it's like yep. you could see it and yep. and and start to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I love the way Debbie you you frame that idea that you know Jesus doesn't give us the option of mm-hmm. of this. If we're going to follow Jesus, we we have to do this kind yep. of work. So. Mm-hmm. I alluded to this at the beginning, but, you know, so we have this spiritual practice we introduce into the first year with the, the congregations that are engaged in this, we call it the Partnership for the Missional Church, that three-year journey, right? And uh, called Dwelling in the Word. Mm-hmm. And for the whole first year, we sit with one text, mm-hmm. Luke 10, 1 to 12, which is, it is when Jesus finally, you know, not just the 12, but he actually sends he sends 70 out and gives kind of instructions of, okay, this is what it looks like to go out in my name. So we thought it might be interesting. We've never done this before on the <laughs> podcast, but to actually just practice that with the three of us. I told you I was just hungry to hear your voice again, thinking about the Bible. <laughs> so no, we would just do this. We would just uh, dwell, dwell with Luke 10. And particularly if there are any listeners who haven't practiced this yet, it might be a, it might mm-hmm. be good. So. Claire, would you actually uh, read the text for us? Gladly. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them on ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself intended to go. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go on your way. See, I am sending you out like lambs into the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this house. And if anyone is there who shares in peace, your peace will rest on that person. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves to be paid. Do not move about from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, eat what is set before you, cure the sick who are there, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not welcome you, go out into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. 
I tell you, on that day, it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for that town. So we want to, we, we, what we say in this is we, we usually will do this twice, a couple of different voices, give a lot of time for reflection. Um, but we are being recorded, so we won't make everyone <laughs> sit for 90 seconds of silence. Right. But part of the practice is to try to listen the other person into free speech. Um, hmm. And Debbie, as our guest, I think we really want to hear first from you. Like what uh, you've probably reflected on this before, but I'm wondering as you listen to it, yeah. what is it that in this reading stuck out for you uh, as a question or an inspiration or a challenge? Sure. I was struck by this line, remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide. Mm -hmm. To me, that's saying, be a guest. Learn to be a gracious guest first. Um, be a recipient of hospitality. Um, because in that, there is need. There is acknowledging your own vulnerability. I'm not, I'm not self-sufficient. I can't feed myself. I don't have a bed to sleep on. I am depending on your care and your generosity so that I can I can live and be here with you and among you. And I think for us as Christians, that's a really humbling, powerful posture. Um, for me, you know, personally coming out of a tradition that was much more about, we're going to go out into the world with what we have to offer. We have the thing that's the thing to offer, and they are going to be the recipients. Where this is inviting us to something much more collaborative, much more generous. The, the vulnerability goes in two directions, not just in one direction. So... I just love that. I love that. that you know, mm -hmm. go and be a guest first. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, you, you know, stay put. Stay put for a while. Don't just well, flit around. Well, the stay around. put is really in there, isn't there? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Be rooted yeah. and give it time. Give it time. Yeah. Yeah, that's... So I've been dwelling in this text as part of the pilot cohort for a year, and mm -hmm. I, I am always moved by how I can hear it anew. That part about staying put was really resonant for me for a few months. Mm -hmm. What I heard today and really appreciated was this instruction to go and just proclaim the kingdom of God has come near to you, which mm. is also exactly what Jesus does at the beginning of his ministry, right? Like the very right. first words out of his mouth in Mark's gospel are like, the kingdom of God is here, has come close. Um, and then it gets repeated later on, like even if, a, even if somebody doesn't welcome you, still offer to them this true statement, the statement that is always true, the kingdom of God has come near. Mm. And I think I find it so reassuring, you know, in the context of like, I think sometimes it can be so tempting to try to figure out like, what does God want from us? What is the point of all that we're doing? What are we trying to accomplish? And, and I think to some extent, we actually do live into Jesus own ministry very faithfully by just sharing the good news that God has come near, yeah. which is the good news of, of this whole season, right? Emmanuel, God comes near again and again and again. So I found that very reassuring mm -hmm. and hopeful. Yeah. You know, I thank you both. I think what I heard today, it's, it's the one that almost everybody jumps on at some point. It's that bit at the end. <laughs> mm -hmm. People, they, they, what, <laughs> what? Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, the, um, you know, the Sodom and Gomorrah, the wiping your dust off your feet. And mm -hmm. while there's a lot there that I'm not exactly sure what to do with, it, 
what what's been resonating with me lately in that is you know this sense of god's our, our freedom that you know the invitation mm-hmm. to to be people of peace there are, if you people can choose not to be people of peace societies yes. can choose to not be mm-hmm. people of peace mm-hmm. you can choose to let guns just apparently <laughs> i'm learning you can mm-hmm. you can yeah. uh, i was reading today you know number one cause of mm-hmm. you know death among youth um, yeah. yeah, you can you can actually choose that, and that's that is exactly what Sodom did. They made a they made a violent choice mm-hmm. for identity uh, and culture, mm. yeah. and it's just that sense of you know the way of love is it's an invitation that we can live out, but but we really can't force it on anybody. And mm-hmm. just to resonate with both of you, I also love that sense that it's also just not us that God's at work in all these places and in other people and that their hospitality, the only way this really happens is through their hospitality. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, an it's just an extraordinary thing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Thank you both. <laughs> Debbie, you wrote an essay uh, on the, the parallel text to this um, in Mark. Mm-hmm. And you said, don't get surprised when your life gets uncomfortable. Discomfort is what success looks like. End quote. Yeah. You want to unpack that a little bit? <laughs> sure. Oh, goodness. Did I really write that? Yeah, apparently I did. Um, you did. No, you got to yeah, defend it now. I uh, know. Um, let's see. Well, I mean, to put it really bluntly, discomfort means we're not dead. It means we're still mm-hmm. here. We're still alive. We're still evolving. We're still stretching. We're still contending and growing and becoming. And that I think that's that's vital. We know this from other areas of our life, right? Every kind of growth and development involves some measure of discomfort. Um, you know, the toddler falls a few gazillion times before she walks. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We parents, we, you know, we drop off our kindergartners, our middle schoolers, our college-bound teens, you know, for their first days at whatever schools. And we cry and we hover and we worry. And then we let them go because that is what growth requires, even though it's uncomfortable for them and for us. In the same way, I think we are not meant to be static in our faith. We're not meant to be frozen. Mm-hmm. You know, specifically in the mainline traditions, our journey is not supposed to end with baptism and confirmation. That's just the beginning. Um, the call is always to move and explore and go deeper. And that deepening can be uncomfortable. It's going to expose our, you know, the little foibles and the little habits that we cling to and the assumptions we have, which God wants to free us from. So that's never easy work, mm. but it's life-giving and, mm. and I think essential. I love how your writing encourages us not only to see Jesus anew, but God and our world and sort of everything anew. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I found your meditation on salt particularly moving, mm-hmm. um, how Christianity has a reputation now for leaving this burnt and bitter sensation like salt poured out without discretion. Yeah. Whereas were we to see the world and creation as having a goodness worth mm-hmm. eliciting, we might interact with it and each other differently. Could you just talk a bit about how this gospel and this idea might help reframe our experience of the earth and our, our wider communities? Sure. Um, so I'm about 10 years into my movement into the Episcopal Church. And so I'm still, I'm like, I feel like I'm in my honeymoon and it's just so sparkly. And for me, one mm-hmm. of the greatest gifts of the Episcopal tradition is its commitment to a, a sacramental universe, um, a universe mm-hmm. that is 
fundamentally good and blessed and precious because it is saturated in the presence of God and the love of God. That's not the teaching I grew up with. So as a child growing up mm. um, in the evangelical tradition, I was taught that the most fundamental truth about the universe is that it is fallen and broken and separated from mm. God. And that while Jesus died to save me, that saving doesn't mean anything consequential for creation as such, because what really matters is heaven and the earth is going to burn anyway, so I don't need to worry about it. And that teaching well-intended as it might have been, felt very bitter to me. It felt heartbreaking and harsh and, and ugly. So speaking as still a kind of a newbie and outsider, I would say if we could just become bolder in our witness as Episcopalians, if we could just stop for a second and grasp what kind of amazing treasure sacramental theology is, we could mm -hmm. tell such a compelling, gorgeous, expansive story about the earth and our place in it. A story that is about salvation for all, every culture, every tribe, every person, every sparrow, every polar bear, every honeybee, mm -hmm. every thousand-year-old sequoia tree, all of these mm -hmm. matter to God. God reveals God's self through every inch and facet of creation. And so every inch and facet of creation needs to matter to us. Mm. So. Debbie, thank you so much for speaking with us today. This has been really, really beautiful. I've loved speaking with both of you. Thank you so much for having me. So Claire, Debbie, we have now come to the lightning round, a tradition here on the Vinyl and Thriving podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Debbie, you have 20 seconds or less oh, to gosh. answer each of these questions. No one has ever done it, but good luck. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> but I've got Are you the, ready? I've got the yes. timer going, so feel the pressure. Okay, okay. <laughs> Okay. First, what is the best thing you ever ate at a church potluck? Okay. My father's Indian church, salmon biryani. That's rice covered with cashews and raisins and cardamom and pomegranate seeds. And we are totally going to be eating that in heaven. Amen. <sighs> From your my lips to is, God's ears. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> my husband is Pakistani, so I know oh, okay. how yes, amazing you know. biryani is. <laughs> <laughs> what is your very first memory of a worship service? Okay, um, house worship service in my parents' first apartment in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I am annoyed. I'm about five years old because the adults are hogging all the sofas and chairs, so the kids have to sit on the floor, and I just want everybody to leave so I can get my house back. Mm. Understood. Tell us the name of a church leader or theologian who isn't a white male that you're listening to or learning from right now that we should know more about. Go. Okay, I am... Um, practically swooning over the work of Cole Arthur Riley, um, who is the executive curator of the Center for Dignity and Contemplation and the creator of Black Liturgies. And she has this amazing book um, called This Here Flesh, Spirituality, Liberation, and the Stories That Make Us. And it's um, a work of what she calls storied theology. It is searing and gorgeous. Please, everybody, read it. Yeah. Did I make it? Did I make it in 20 seconds? Yeah, you, you did. You did great. No, I was just having a moment. Like I, I really like during during COVID, I, I I just loved those liturgies on Instagram. It just was mm. it was just such a yeah. joy to kind of be able mm. to to go to those. I found them a real centering, yeah. kind of just a, a really, a really unique. She has a mm. very, very special voice. Yeah. Thanks for being with us, Debbie. It's just oh, been so it's fun. been great to Thank have you. Thank you for with having us. me. Yeah. It was lovely. Yes. Thank you. So, Scott, what did you learn from Debbie today? Well, I, you know, I think I, first of all, just had a moment of appreciation of just all that I've, mm. I've learned from Debbie. 
and it in this that same kind of uh, wisdom transparency showed up today. It's you know, and it, it's really tied to this dwelling in the word. You know, part of what we do in dwelling in the word is we're we're recognizing that the Holy Spirit is at work in a whole community, not just the ordained people, not just the people who have gone to seminary, and you know, often our scripted understandings keep us from a deeper listening and part of what i just uh you know i've learned more about the bible from you know as as we were saying earlier normal people Mm -hmm. and debbie is someone who comes with just very unique unique life experience uh cultural Mm -hmm. social location uh as you know her her parents being south indian Mm -hmm. immigrants uh and then being steeped in evangelicalism, going through deconstruction, coming out really in this place of just wonder mm-hmm. and delight yeah. um, in who God is, and particularly as the God that's revealed to us in Jesus, mm. and delight particularly at how that is perceived and heard at the margins. Mm. Um, and I think she just, she in her writing and her speaking, she just... She embodies that that kind of voice, mm-hmm. and uh, I I'm just I'm very grateful grateful for it. She's somebody I just want to listen to, learn from. Yeah, you know I think that touches on some of what struck me. I mean, this she she described her own faith journey in the deconstruction and her sense of just like awe and and the expansiveness of God in this much more complex and messy story of salvation um, is so real. And, you know, it just really struck me that idea of, you know, our lives being supposedly, or that our lives are supposed to be kind of tidy and how much suffering that has caused and, and how foreign that idea is to our tradition when this, yeah, much more complex experience of life and of God can be so rich and so life-giving. Um And then, you know, what really struck me, you asked that question about discomfort. And I found myself thinking about this last night, you know, several podcasts ago, I had just gotten back like at two o'clock that morning from this trip to Guatemala. And last night I had a chance to go up to St. John the Evangelist, another church going through the pilot cohort um, and meet up with the people I I went on that trip with and talk a little bit about the work of Christosal, this incredible human rights organization. And as I was driving home, I was just so reminded that some of what I so appreciated about my time in Guatemala was how courageous and faithful and just inspiring it was to be with people who were actively choosing day after day after day, like not only uncomfortable, but potentially like dangerous ways of moving through the world in order to advocate for their own humanity and that of others. And it just so reminded me of the witness of Jesus, which I think came through so strongly in this conversation that when we follow that, it, it can have costs and it, it can be so full of, of joy and so rich at the same time. I just feel really reminded of that. Yeah. Thank you, Claire. Mm, thank you. This episode of the Vital and Thriving podcast was hosted by Claire Dietrich Rana and Scott Sherman. Our theme music is composed and performed by Jeremy Sherman as tribute to Django Reinhardt and the Hot Club of France. 
This podcast is part of Vital and Thriving Congregations, a joint initiative between Newbigin House of Studies and the Episcopal Church in the Bay Area, the Diocese of California. Visit vitalthriving.org for more information. Thank you.